O Lord Jesus. Thank you for your words, which give us life. Words which, frankly, Jesus, we would not have chosen for ourselves because oftentimes they are words that seemed, seem to wound even as they heal. Jesus, we need your help by your spirit. Will you keep us from shutting off our ears or closing off our heart from the medicine that we so badly need? Will you make us aware of the fact that we are sinners before you, a holy God? and yet that we have found grace and forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. Will you help us to have our hearts helped by the warnings and to have our hearts filled with hope through your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have you ever had the sense that your news feed is full of bad news? It's not just your imagination. It's not just Facebook playing with you. Uh, it turns out that the people that make the news have come to a realization. Bad news sells. Uh, a few years back, McGill University did a study on this very topic. They asked a group of people whether they would prefer their news to be good news or bad news. Now, overwhelmingly, they said they preferred good news. But then when the researchers tracked as those people went clicking through their web browsers, their clicks told a completely different story. It turned out again and again they chose to read the depressing, the bad news headlines. Why is that? Well, researchers give it a term. They call it negativity bias. Uh, the article I was reading on it said that we have an insatiable hunger for bad news. Now, as you might suspect, that is not great for people's outlook on life, their disposition. It leads to depression and a skewed understanding of the world, as well as the other issues. You can see why people would be tempted just to shut off all the bad news and, and do nothing but listen to good news. But let's realize that that also is not a good strategy. Because there are times where bad news actually helps you. Uh, think about what would happen when... A really bad storm is outside the window. You happen to look out and see a cloud that looks a lot like a funnel. And at that moment, you hear a not nice sounding sound coming through the wall, a tornado siren. Now, none of us would say that's good news, and yet I think all of us would recognize we are being helped with the warning. It's time to get down to the basement. Bad news can help you to avoid danger sometimes. Now, as Christians, we understand that there's a, a bit of a dynamic that goes on between bad news and good news. We need bad news to prepare us for the good news of the gospel of Jesus. We need to be reminded, even exposed as sinners before a God that judges, the worst of all news, for us to be ready to receive the gospel of grace, that God forgives sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, it's for that reason that the book of Micah is a book that you as a Christian need to be familiar with. It is a book that is filled with extremely bad news and exceptionally good news. The book of Micah is seven chapters long. 
you might get a bit of whiplash as you read through it if you're not prepared. It really does go from stark bad news to incredible good news, back and forth again, three times. And as we study it, I hope you'll find bad news that helps and good news that'll fill your heart with hope. Uh, let's begin by meeting the prophet whose name is on the book, Micah. Verse 1, let's meet Micah together. Uh, we're told the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, right from the beginning, we learn quite a bit about Micah and the book bearing his name. Uh, Micah was a small town prophet. Uh, most prophets are introduced by the family they belong to. Instead, Micah's introduced by the town he is from, and that is a, a, a farm town in the middle of nowhere, Judea. Micah is not someone with any great pedigree or any sort of power from his family lineage. And yet, this small town prophet will have an outsized voice. We'll see that God will use him to turn the heart of the king of Judah at just the right time to save a generation of God's people. Uh, Micah, we're told, served under the reign of three different kings. Uh, likely his ministry would be something like from 730 B.C. to 700-ish, somewhere in that range. Um, during that period of time, a lot was changing in the lives of God's people. We're at the point where Solomon's long gone and the glory of his golden age is far in the past. Uh, God's people have been broken into two nations. The, the northern nation of Israel, made up of the ten tribes. And then the southern nation of Judah, with the two remaining tribes, with the capital of Jerusalem. Now, Micah would be from the southern tribe, and he would have had a front row seat to watch what happened to the north during those early years of his ministry. Now, Israel had been going from bad to worse. They had adopted the worship of the other nations around them. In so doing, they had broken the promise of the covenant they had made with God. Uh, that means that they were bowing down before idols. They were using cult prostitutes. They were even sacrificing their own children. Uh, their sins extended to how they treated each other as well. They were, they were guilty of rampant injustice. They were known for the rich, upper class, paying off judges, finding prophets that would declare what they were doing is right, even as they stole from the middle class. They also had turned their hopes away from God. They were trusting instead in the very things God told them not to trust in. Military might, horses, chariots, and the armies of neighboring nations. Now, all of those things were explicitly laid out in God's agreement with his people and his covenant as things that would bring God's judgment upon them. And that judgment finally came, first in 733 B.C. and then in 722. It came in the form of the big bad bully on the block, the Assyrians. They were a cruel people. They were gobbling up nations left and right. And they came sweeping through the northern territory, the nation of Israel. The capital of Samaria was completely leveled. All of its defensive walls were ground down to dust. Its foundation stones were upended. And then the people were taken and dragged out of the promised land to go live off 
in a pagan nation under pagan gods, never to return. Micah would see all that happen, and that's bad enough. But in Micah's day, that infection that started in the north was beginning to spread and even metastasize in the south. He saw those same sins present in Judah. Idolatry, setting up high places to, to worship other gods and bow down before idols and, yes, even sacrifice their children. He saw these same military alliances and reliance on their own military might. And he saw that same social injustice. Prophets that would not call sin a sin. Judges that could be bought off. And the rich preying on the middle class. Micah saw all these things, which means Micah lived at a time where it was just a matter of time until judgment came to Jerusalem. Now, Micah, he lived during the reign of three kings. Uh, two of those kings were, were pretty bad. Those first two, Ahaz, uh, Jotham and Ahaz. The third king, though, was pretty good, uh, Hezekiah. Uh, Hezekiah largely had a heart for the Lord. He, he renewed the worship of God's people. He destroyed the idols. He, he made good decisions as a whole. And yet, for as good as Hezekiah was, he made at least one major mistake. He still tried to make alliances with other nations and trust in his own political might. In particular, he waited until it seemed like Assyria wasn't paying attention anymore, and he stopped paying the tribute that Judah had been paying to keep Assyria off their back. Now, God sent prophets to warn him not to do that, including Isaiah, but Hezekiah did it anyway. And pretty soon, Assyria came calling for Jerusalem. In 701, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, came sweeping through the north with an army larger than anyone in Judah had ever seen. All the alliances that Hezekiah had hoped to keep him safe, they, they all proved to be utterly useless. His allies came to his aid and were flattened like they got run over by a steamroller. He watched as each and every one of the Judean towns that were fortified were swept over by this army like a tide that was rising. And then that tide of men with pointy spears and swords came all the way up to the gates of Jerusalem. Now at this point is the very most important moment of Micah's ministry. At the moment where there were no more allies left. There was no more gold and silver to give over to the king to pay him off. There was no hope of military victory. It's because at this moment where all was lost... Israel's God would come to their aid. We read the account in 2 Kings 18. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sent someone to the walls to boast about what he was about to do to Jerusalem. Listen to the pride in these words. 2 Kings 18, 32. Do not listen to Hezekiah. When he misleads you, saying, the Lord will deliver us, has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hanan, Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands has delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem? 
out of my hand. Imagine being an inhabitant of Jerusalem or, or an inhabitant of one of those towns that had fled behind the walls and hearing this proud Assyrian king telling you what's about to happen to you. At that moment, the ministry of Micah and Isaiah and the prophets shine brightest. Because it's at that moment that God spoke through them to Hezekiah and told him to repent. That this judgment that had come could be averted if he would just turn away from his sin and turn back to the Lord. That's precisely what Hezekiah did. He lamented and wailed and turned back to the God. And God did the most amazing thing. He saved Jerusalem on that day. We read about it in 2 Kings 19. It's amazingly brief considering the long chapters that tell us about this army coming to their footstep, to, the, uh, to their front door. 2 Kings 19, 35 through 36. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. We know from contemporary historians that the angel of the Lord likely used the lowly field mouse to make a bubonic plague sweep through that army, destroying the might of the invincible Assyrian king in a moment. In that moment, we saw the repentance leading to God's salvation, the bad news of judgment giving forth into the good news of a God who forgives and saves his people. To understand the book of Micah, you have to understand that backdrop of really, really bad news. To understand the good news that he speaks about. Now, Micah, as a book, is really like the sermon file of Micah the prophet. So that's why it moves back and forth between these horrible oracles of doom and these glorious oracles of salvation. It's because they're bits of Micah's uh, sermons from over three decades kind of stitched together for effect. And Micah has certain things in it, certain themes that we'll see as we study together. Uh, one of the main ones will be God's people breaking their covenant with God through idolatry. We'll see that never ends well. We'll see also this theme of injustice and the way that God's people treat each other. And uh, just a, a word of warning, we need to be careful to not make the mistake of running straight from our text to where we live today. As evangelical Christians, we, we want the Bible to inform the way we live, but sometimes we don't think carefully enough about how the situation back in that day is different from our own day. So you're going to see words that are Right now, flashpoints in our cultural discourse, you know, words like oppression, injustice, uh, justice, things like that. And uh, those are really important concepts, but we need to understand them first, how Micah intended them in his day, before we can apply them to ourselves as we seek to be salt and light in the day we live. We'll get to do that together. And when we arrive in some of the more famous passages in Micah, I think we'll be more equipped to be salt and light as we do justice and love mercy as we walk with our God in humility. One more theme that's really important in the book of Micah is exile. That is the, the consequence for God's people breaking their covenant is to be ripped from the land that he has promised. First with the Assyrian exile, 
for the northern tribes, and then the Babylonian exile later for Judah. But Micah is not just filled with bad news. It also has glorious good news. Uh, Micah has these visions of a day coming when God's people will be gathered back from exile. When they will be under a a good king, a, a shepherd whose days are from old. Someone who will lead them into a time of peace and prosperity. Someone that will prove that their God truly is unlike any of the gods of the peoples. Uh, Because it turns out Micah's name is a bit of good news in itself. Really quickly, turn with me to Micah 7. Micah 7, verse 18. The name Micah actually means who is like Yahweh. He uses that very line in verse 18. Who is a God like you? That's the word Micah. His own name preaches. Why is God unlike all the other gods? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, as we study it together, I hope you will be helped by the bad news of God's judgment on sin and sinners so that your heart can find hope in the good news of a God unlike any other God, one full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. We're going to begin by our study by looking at the rest of the uh, uh, chapter 1, and we'll do so briefly. It's uh, two snapshots of bad news, one against the northern kingdom of Israel and the second against the southern kingdom of Judah. So first, the judge is coming to Samaria in verses 2 through 7. The judge is coming to Samaria. I have a confession to make. One of my guilty pleasures are old Godzilla movies. I I mean, the movies, not with all the computer graphics and all that, the ones with guys in rubber suits wrestling with each other in cardboard cities. Um, Special effects were not anything to behold back then, but I grew up watching them. And I enjoyed them because there is uh, something embedded in the idea of monster movies. That idea of transcendent danger. Uh, A giant monster before whom we're like ants. Just smashing all these structures we've worked so hard to create. Uh, There's something in the resonance of that transcendence that makes us think of the images that Micah preaches about of a God so far above us, so much more vastly powerful and intense in his judgments that who in the world could possibly stand against him? In verse 2, we are told that the nations are called to court, as you will. They're called to observe what Israel's God is about to do. What he's about to do is judge his people. In verse 3, we see what that judgment will be like. It will be terrifying and intense. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. The image is of the supposed strong point of all those pagan gods, the high places where their altars were. 
as Israel's God steps out of his heavenly home to the earth, his footsteps land upon those high places and they melt beneath him. The rock runs like water down into the valleys. What sort of army could stop a God like this? Why is he coming? Verse 5 tells us. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? God's people have fallen into grave sin, specifically the sin of idolatry. The focal point of their worship, Samaria, the capital city, the place they would come to, to worship God, has become the den of idols. The place that most bears God's anger because it's where they worship the gods around them, the gods of the nations. As a result, judgment has come for the capital. Verse 6, therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Mighty Samaria, great gleaming walls and stout defenses, those walls will be ground down and it'll turn into a place for you to grow grapes. There'll be nothing left. It'll be an overgrown, desolate, desolate field by the time this judgment is done. Now, all of this is undoubtedly fulfilled in the Assyrians coming and destroying the capital of Samaria and dragging off all of the northern tribes of Israel into exile. But notice it has been the idolatry of God's people that led to this. And notice on that day how foolish that idolatry looks. Look in verse 7. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Now idols represented the gods that you were worshiping. But they were made from tangible stuff. Wood or for the more wealthy like the people of Israel in that day. Silver and gold. They were literally made of money. But when the true God shows up, notice what happens to the idols. Their supposed power is shown for what it is as they melt before him and turn back into currency that goes right back into the system to be spent on prostitutes. What we see here is the futility of worshiping idols and the warning of judgment that will inevitably come for anyone that does. Now friends, this is undoubtedly a stark set of terrifying images. This is bad news for anyone that dares to worship a God other than the God of Israel. Uh, you can boil down the lesson to this. Idolatry never ends well. It never ends well. Now, I'm not just talking about worshiping a statue made of silver or gold or wood. At its heart, idolatry is turning anything into your everything. It is elevating something in this world into the place that God and God alone should have in our hearts. So even though we may not bow down to idols made of money the way they did, uh, there are certainly idols that our hearts latch onto. 
Uh, Maybe it's the idol of money and the things it brings. Uh, Think about how much time we invest in our careers and to investing our funds into trying to make sure we have enough to retire one day. None of those things are bad on their own. But do you know how easily your heart can begin to bow down before the idol of money and the stuff it can buy? Uh, Do you ever catch yourself getting unusually upset when the stock market has a bad day? Or, Or maybe do you find yourself a little stingier than you like to admit when there's some person that comes in need and you know you have the resources to help, but you're not so sure you want to. Our hearts latch on to the supposed security money can bring us. And before you know it, you've spent your life chasing after an idol. But friends, on the day God appears, your idol of money won't be worth the paper it's printed on. Learn where true value is. Worship God and God alone. Or what about the idol of romantic love? Everyone wants to be accepted, to to have someone that's safe, that knows you and cherishes you and even makes you feel good. Not wrong to desire to be married, to have a spouse. And yet, how many sins are committed chasing after that sort of elusive romantic relationship? How many of God's laws are we willing to to bend or pretend like they don't exist just as long as we get that thing that will make us home, whole, or maybe even that person? But friend, you were never meant to find full satisfaction in the arms of anyone except the arms of the God who made you. Don't turn even a spouse into an idol. Only God is able to satisfy the, the depths of your heart in this way. Worship him alone. Or what about today? I think one of the more pressing idols is that of social approval. We not want not only to have a voice, we want people to hear us and to applaud us. Applaud everything that we say, every emotion that we feel we must express. What if you have the wrong audience in mind from the very beginning though, friend? What if the approval of the people on Facebook or your friends or the people at work, what if, what if that approval doesn't really matter on the day when the Lord appears? On that day, the words you will want to hear, the applause you will desire are from him, as he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't give your life for an idol. It'll only let you down, and it has no power to save. Micah shows us what happened to the northern kingdom in their idolatry. It resulted in judgment coming for the house of Israel. And friend, if we bow down our hearts to idols today, we will reap what we sow as well. Learn from their lesson. There's a second picture here of also of bad news. However, I think this one's different. And as we see it, I, I hope you'll see there's actually hope embedded in this, uh, the second section of bad news. That second section is in 8 through 16, and that's judgment coming to Judah. Charles Spurgeon was once accused of using too much humor in his sermons. A well-meaning brother in the Lord came up to him and rebuked him over how many jokes he was cracking. And Spurgeon famously said, oh, my dear brother, if you only knew how many jokes I was holding back, you would thank me. We have 
tropes about preachers. You know, there are, there are certain tendencies that ruts that preachers fall into. And, uh, you know, you know, I mean, three-point alliterated sermons and word plays and puns and things like that. And there's a reason why sometimes those things are overused. It's because they are helpful communication tools. You'll remember the message more if we spice it up just right. Sometimes we overdo it a little bit. Now, Micah shows that he is a preacher with a bag full of tricks, and he's not afraid to use them. We see here him using at least two very common preaching devices in his preaching ministry. In verses 8 through 9, he uses drama. Verse 8, uh, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentations like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Uh, Micah is so willing to try and win a hearing with his hearers that he's willing to bear his soul, if you will. He's really willing to physically strip down naked if that will mean they will actually listen to his warnings. For some time or the other, he, he went around as the naked prophet so that he could lay bare the sins of God's people. Verse 9 shows why he needed to be heard. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. The rot of sin has, it has spread. It's metastasized. It has gone from the north, and now it's present in the south, even to Jerusalem itself. Micah understands that idolatry and injustice and trusting the gods of the nations led to Israel being taken out into exile. And that unless they turn from their ways, the same thing is going to happen to Judah. So he strips and he pleads and he preaches. Question is, will anyone listen? Verses 10 through 16 shows him using a different tool. Uh, this time it's puns and wordplay. Uh, off a series of cities, 10 in all, each with a name that, as many Hebrews' names did, have a specific meaning to it, and then a judgment that's fitting for that name. The, to use modern examples, it would be a bit like saying, the windy city is about to be blown away by God's judgment that's coming. Or the, the, the big apple has gone rotten to its core. It needs to repent. Now, Micah is not doing this to get a laugh. We use puns in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way. But that wasn't the way the ancient uh, Hebrews would have understood it. Uh, one commentator, Leslie Allen, says this. Uh, he makes a series of puns, which is a Semitic way of thinking, were by no means weak jokes, but affirmations to be taken seriously. It was a way of tying your name to the reality that judgment was just around the corner, almost like your destiny, unless you repented. Now, I, uh, I was benefited from the work of Bruce Waltke on how to understand the names of each town to connect them to the judgment, but you can also look in your ESV study Bible if you have one, if you want to look these up later. He begins by speaking about Bethlehem, the dust town, and he says, you ought to be repenting by rolling in the dust yourselves. To Shafir, beauty town, he says, when judgment comes, you're going to be stripped naked, shamefully, on that day. 
To Zanon, the people of going forth town, well, they're going to be stuck in their city with nowhere to go. In takeaway town, Beth Ezel, God is going to take the very ground out from under them on which they stand. In bitter town, Meroth, they're going to come to a bitter end. And mount up your war horsesville, Lachish. Instead, they're going to find themselves mounting up horses to run for the hills when judgment comes. Uh, bride town of Morsheth Gath, it's going to be given away as a wedding gift, a dowry to the king of Assyria when he shows up. Uh, deceitful town, Axib, is going to pull a fast one on the king of Israel the day he needs them most. And conqueror town, Merishah, is going to be conquered. Now in all these towns, Micah is building the dread in anticipation of what is coming. And imagine that you were a faithful Judean on that day. Imagine you had heard the bad news that the king of Assyria was coming to town. So you got out of your little farming town. You headed to Jerusalem and got, managed to get behind those big walls. And imagine as you looked over those walls and you watched the countryside light on fire and all those angry Assyrian soldiers sweep over the place you used to call home. Imagine how Micah's words must have been ringing in your ears as it happened. Judgment has come. The bad news of judgment was true. What now? All of this leads to the exclamation point, which is verse 16. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves bald as an eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. The king of Assyria is here. Judgment is here. And that means we're about to be ripped from the promised land, just like Israel was a short time ago. Now, remember, I said that this should be a hopeful part of the Bible. But it's only hopeful if you understand the context. Micah preached the bad news without pulling any punches. But he did it because bad news can be good for you. If bad news turns you from your sins and turns you back to God. And that's precisely what happened. The preaching of Micah and Isaiah convinced Hezekiah to turn from trusting his generals and his wealth and his neighbors and to trusting the God that he was covenantly bound to. It's recorded for us in Jeremiah 26, 18 through 19. You can read it on your own this week. Micah's warnings were heard. His word of judgment helped Hezekiah to repent before the Lord. And in so doing, he saved a generation of God's people. God turned away the judgment of the Assyrian army. He destroyed them in a single night with a single angel. And in that moment, God's people knew the good news. Who is like the God of Israel? Forgiving sins and rescuing his people. So what are we to take from these stark passages, these messages of judgment that Micah wrote down thousands of years ago? Well, I think one of the things we should take from it is how quickly we should repent from our sins. 
Uh, imagine for a moment that Hezekiah had delayed in his repentance another day or another week. What disaster would have come upon the city of Jerusalem? None of us are guaranteed any length of time on this earth. None of us knows what will be our last opportunity to hop off the exit ramp on the freeway to judgment that we're on in the midst of our sins. When you hear God's voice, when you hear his warnings over where your sins will lead you, brothers and sisters, heed those warnings. Repent quickly. None of us knows when judgment will come, and none of us wants to be found on that day, caught unaware by the judgment of God. And brothers and sisters, what good news that when we do repent, we know that God will receive us with grace and mercy, that he will turn from the judgment that our sins deserve, especially if we come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe this week you find yourself dabbling in some sin yet again. You feel that pang of guilt. Maybe even you feel a moment of terror. What does this mean about my standing with God? Don't sit there and dwell on it. Turn from your sin and turn back to God. Like Hezekiah and the Judeans did on that day. Find the grace of God to cover our sins and to welcome us back and to right fellowship with him. I think Micah also shows us our posture as we help other sinners come to the reality of the bad news of judgment coming for them. Micah was the sort of preacher that preached with a broken heart and a tear in his eye. He didn't just blast people from on high. No, he, he was willing to get down low, to even strip naked if that's what it took for people to see his heart for them. Realize every time you try and reach someone for Jesus, you need to have that same mix. A heart that's broken over the judgment that they might experience, and, and yet a conviction that the truth is the medicine they so desperately need. Uh, friend, maybe you have an opportunity this week to share the gospel with someone at work, and maybe you're tempted just to tell them Jesus loves them and leave it at that. But ask yourself, maybe, maybe they need the bad news, the bad news of God's judgment coming for sinners, for them to be ready to hear the good news of Jesus crucified to save sinners. Let's be the sort of people that are willing to give people the whole gospel, bad news and good news, with the expectation that God can save even those that are on the course headed toward judgment. Well, brothers and sisters, Micah has many more messages for us. Stark bad news and glorious heights of good news. Because as it turns out, sometimes bad news can help us be ready to receive the good news that our hearts so desperately need to find hope in. I remember near the end of my, uh, wasn't near the end, it was at the very end of my seminary career, my graduation, there was a wonderful sermon that was preached that I don't remember hardly anything about. There are lots of scriptures that were read that have faded from my memory. I remember certain family members that were there and friends. But one thing is still burning in my mind all these years later. One of my professors got up and gave us a charge. He said to all the men that were there that were charged to be preachers of the gospel like me, to come preach in pulpits like this one. 
said, never forget, your job is to tell people the worst news that they've ever heard, that they are sinners before a holy God. And your job is to tell them news so good they never could have even imagined it, that they could be saved through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that same charge is for each and every one of us. We've been entrusted with the gospel. Let's preach it. Good news and bad news. That God may turn people from their sins. And let's remember that God has given us something like an acted parable to remind us of exactly what that bad news was and the good news that saved us from it in the Lord's table. In it, we are given a reminder of the fact that, yes, we are sinners before a holy God. And yet that God is full of mercy and grace, so much so that he sent his son to die, to turn away the wrath of God and forgive us of our sins. As we turn our attention to the table, let's do so with hearts full of hope, the good news we have in Jesus. Would you pray with me?